Welcome to the Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast podcast with Kristen Howard. Today I'm discussing the Q. Curbitaceae family, but you may have heard this called the squash family. After today's crash course lesson, you'll be growing food in the squash family like a pro, and I'll tell you which varieties I'm growing this year so you can work smarter, not harder in your garden, and save a ton of money by avoiding expensive pest control products and increasing your food yield. I'm going to start off by telling you why a plant scientific name is so important. The way I've learned to simplify information about different types of plants is to start off by focusing on the family they come from. All plants have a scientific classification with a kingdom, order, family, genus, and species. A plant scientific name, or sometimes called a botanical name, is given in Latin, and the name includes the genus and species. The family classification of a plant is just as important to know about, as this will shed light on many key features of this plant, its fruit, and its growing habits, as well as many other pieces of information. Knowing one plant family opens the doors to, you knowing, basic information about hundreds of plants without doing any more research. The most abundant and popular warm season vegetables that you can grow in a home garden in very little space are from the cucurbitaceae family. As previously mentioned, you may call it the squash family, or you may have even heard it called the gourd or cucumber family, as all of these foods grow in the cucurbitaceae family. For the purpose of this discussion, we'll simplify the more difficult to pronounce Latin family name and refer back to this as cucurbits in an effort to stay as close to the family name as possible without adding to the confusion. There are over 950 known species within the cucurbit family. The most important for our purposes include squashes, pumpkins, gourds, watermelon, cucumber, bitter melon, and loofah. These plants grow in tropical climates and more temperate areas, which is why they are considered warm season crops and are usually killed by a frost at the end of their growing season. Specifically when talking about Houston, zone 8B, 9A, Cucurbits can usually be started by seed outdoors after the first frost date in late February, or transplants set out in March, and the plants will continue to grow until the first frost of the year, which is usually in late November. If you are in Houston or the surrounding area, you will have a few extra challenges with these plants that other areas may not have, but also a few advantages that other areas may not have. Aside from the obvious challenge, like pests, and you vet- Aside from the obvious challenges like pests, and you veteran growers know what I'm talking about when I refer to pests of the squash vine, heavy rainfall and humidity are among the main challenges that this plant encounters in Houston, but can be easily solved through proper planning and bed preparation. In this episode, we will not talk about bed preparation specifics, but I have other podcasts and YouTube episodes devoted to bed construction, bed preparation, and composting that you can refer to. The advantages to growing in a subtropical climate like Houston is that warm season plants, like those from the cucurbit family, love the heat. Our long growing season makes it possible to get an extended crop from warm season plants as long as they are cared for and fertilized for this goal. You could even start cucurbits later in the season or succession plant these crops. Succession planting means you start a new plant outdoors once a week to avoid harvesting all of your crop at the same time. 
A quick comment about summer and winter squash before we move on. All plants from the cucurbit family can offer a summer squash. A summer squash is just the young fruit that you harvest just after the flower falls off the fruit. When the flower falls off a cucurbit, it is fully pollinated and will start to develop seeds. As you let these seeds form, the outer fruit hardens and turns into a protective shell for the seeds and flesh inside. Some of the fruit, like a classic winter butternut squash or an ash gourd, can be cooked and is edible and very delicious. Others, like a loofah gourd, get grainy and dry as they age, and they're not edible when it's past this young stage. But all gourds can be eaten like a summer squash when the fruit is only a few days old and the seeds have not matured. Especially if you're in a cold climate and don't think you can grow squash, or you think winter squash and gourds can only be used after a 90-day growing period, they can actually be harvested to eat roughly 30 to 45 days, just used in a different way, like this summer squash. So it's just a little something for you to think about as you learn today. So back to getting to know the cucurbit family in general. Knowing the characteristics and features on this family of plants is very helpful when you lose a tag in your garden and need to identify a plant. Additionally, the seeds of this family will germinate quickly, and if you've had fruit drop and seeds spread from the season before, you may have volunteer plants pop up the next year without labels. The first thing I look for to identify these plants is the fuzzy pentagular stem. Next, the fairly large alternate leaves are simple palmately lobed or palmately compound, and you will begin to see the presence of tendrils when a plant is large enough to start climbing. When these plants begin to flower, you will see both a male and a female flower, with the female flower having an inferior ovary, which means that you will see the ovary below the flower. The fruit that comes from this is called a pepo, which is a kind of modified berry. It's important to identify the plants in your garden correctly, especially if you're using a pest management program or need to look for specific infestations before they get out of control. A lot of the edible plants in the cucurbit family are known to get whitefly, squash beetle, and can even get a number of cucurbit viruses. I found the best way to manage these problems in the vegetable garden is to avoid them altogether. And I know that that's not a novel idea, but truly, that is the best way to solve this problem. I was watching Karate Kid the other day and I laughed so hard at Mr. Miyagi's advice because he says something like, the best block is no be there. <laughs> For gardening, I interpret that as, don't fight a problem, just don't have the problem to begin with. As soon as I stopped planting just any vegetable seed and started looking for the right varieties for my area, I started having zero disease problems, reduced my pest problems, and maximized the potential yield for my crops because they were consistently healthy. That's the real goal here, growing as much food as you can for as little money and effort as possible, which is why I love cucurbits. If you need a quick break, now is a great time before we really dive in. So how do you choose the right varieties from the cucurbit family? Well, first you will probably go to the store and pick seeds, right? Most people assume that if a plant or a seed selection is being sold in your local area, that it is going to be right for your area. Otherwise, why would your big box home improvement store have a 100% guarantee or your money back policy 
on your vegetable plants if it wasn't going to live in your climate? The answer is underhanded. The big box store doesn't foot the bill for that return policy. Their vendor does, and they really just don't care. Because honestly, most people will not return a $5 plant that dies, and the big box store will get to keep the money from most of those bad sales. The return policy doesn't apply to seeds that I'm aware of, but the same problem occurs with the variety of seeds that are available as well. Sometimes you can find a better variety of seeds for your area at a specialty family-owned garden store or feed store, but again, this isn't necessarily true unless the owner is an ambitious gardener themselves and does the research as well as trials the plants at their home like I do. Most seed varieties found in stores are better suited for the northeast of the United States, and many of the cucurbit options are English varieties, which means they actually aren't all that well adapted to a subtropical climate like Houston. They are just not well-suited for the challenges the Gulf Coast has to offer. So back to my original question. How do you choose the right varieties from the cucurbit family if you can't simply waltz over to the store and get something that will work? I mentioned in a previous YouTube video that I don't have an organic garden in order to avoid chemicals. I have an organic garden because I have selected varieties of plants that are suited for the local area, and through simple care techniques, they survive pests, diseases, and other challenges on their own without me stepping in to prevent or treat a problem that arises. In other episodes, I discuss the importance of seed saving and how seeds grown in their second year are so much tougher and more adapted to the local climate. In my opinion, your first option to find the right varieties is to get in touch with local growers and gardeners or gardening groups in your community that have their own organic gardens and ask to grow the seeds they collected from the previous year. This is not a way to be cheap and avoid buying your own seeds. This is a strategy. If those gardeners successfully grew these varieties from the previous season, it is likely the seeds they collected are more adapted to the local area than seeds you can purchase from other areas of the country. Now, with collected seeds, you have a chance of those seeds being cross-pollinated, but let's not get ahead of ourselves right now and worry about that. If you don't have access to other gardeners in your community that like to swap or share seeds, then it's time to go to the internet with your wish list. I've been purchasing seeds online for years because I can do a lot of research about the varieties I'm interested in, and there are many online distributors that grow their own seeds and stand by them. I don't get paid to promote brands, but I will credit the great growers I receive my seeds from in Instagram posts and blog reviews. Reviews made by local growers on seed varieties has saved me a lot of money by avoiding a plant that didn't work in my area or finding an alternate great suggestion that will work better than my original selection. Here's what I've learned from my own trial and error in reading those reviews. First, there is a limited variety of summer and winter squash that works with few pest problems in the Houston area. Second, summer squashes and winter squashes are basically the same. Don't forget that I mentioned earlier that any winter squash can also be a summer squash along with any of your gourds. The only difference is when you pick them in the growing process. Third, if you're willing to decorate the porch in October with gourds instead of pumpkins, there are some much better choices with weird, interesting colors and surprisingly long storage and superior flavor because you can actually eat these weird gourds after the decorating season has ended. Last, some Asian varieties from this family come from climates similar to the Houston and Gulf Coast area and therefore can work really well. So well, in fact, that you will want to grow them every year or, as is the case with me, 
They will self-seed and come back each year on their own, whether they're invited to do so or not. In my Instagram posts and the stories section, I talk in depth about the specific varieties I recommend, and I will even be showing you weekly progress reports as I grow this year. So make sure you're not just following along on Instagram, but also participating in Q&A Fridays and actively learning along to build upon today's podcast information. One of the most popular items grown by new gardeners is zucchini. It is considered a summer squash, which means it is picked early before the outer skin toughens and seeds fully develop. To pick the perfect zucchini squash, you must pick within 12 hours of the flower falling off. It doesn't matter what size the squash is at this point, but once the flower drops, the zucchini is actively turning into a winter squash by forming those seeds and creating a tougher outer skin. Now, zucchini can be trouble, but I found a variety called Cocozelle and some patty pan do a little better than other varieties I've tried of green and yellow squash. I wrap the stem in painter's tape when I plant it, and I bury as much of the stem as I can. If the stem splits, I wrap it with tape until it heals or bury it. If a vine trails along the ground, I bury it. This past May, these plants perished from Houston's 10-day straight rainstorm, basically from root suffocation, but they did not have any pests on them for the three-month period they were successfully growing using this taping and burying method. And I highly recommend at least giving it a shot with one of your plants this year. Winter squash lovers will often pick one of the grocery store options, which usually includes spaghetti squash, butternut squash, and acorn squash. If you are lucky enough to know about delicata squash, then this variety usually makes your wish list as well. The best option for one I'll refer to as the grocery store list of squashes will be butternut squash for your garden. I've had the most success out of the four named options with butternut, and this is because the cucurbita moschata, which is the Latin scientific name for the butternut squash, is more pest and disease resistant. So when you look up varieties that work best for your area, look for this scientific name, cucurbita moschata. Other cultivars from cucurbita moschata include Calabaza squash, Long Island cheese pumpkin, Muscata province, and a few others including a summer squash selection called Zucchetta or Trombonico. Now I've probably butchered a lot of those French or Italian names, but hopefully you get the idea and can do a little Google search yourself. You may not know it, but you've probably even seen Long Island cheese pumpkin or Muscata province pumpkin in your local grocery store. And in fact, the fairy tale variety of pumpkin at a well-known Houston grocery store is actually called the Musk de Province. And this is a French heirloom pumpkin I use to make pumpkin puree. And I use the pumpkin water as a soup base and butternut squash soup for rich vitamin-filled soup. You can even use this pumpkin water as a pre-workout drink for a demanding workout because the pumpkin water is pretty saccharine on its own. The seeds of this pumpkin are also superior for making toasted pumpkin seeds in the shell. Instead of buying seeds for this pumpkin to plant in the garden, I'll be finding out next warm season if this pumpkin holds true to its heirloom promise and reusing seeds collected from my purchased grocery store whole pumpkin. I have also purchased Long Island cheese pumpkin seeds to find out if there's a difference in taste because these two pumpkins visually look identical to me. There's one more cucurbita moschata that I grew last year as a quick vine trial, and it's called Tunas Makino, or 
shishigatani squash. Sounds pretty interesting. It's definitely some sort of Asian squash variety. These vines were outstanding, handling a fair amount of cold weather, wind, and pests without any damage. Now, I've also heard from other growers and articles online that the cucurbita pepo varieties, which includes acorn squash and spaghetti squash, can be grown in Houston. I have not experienced the same luck that other growers have commented on with this type. And before any fruit from these trials have completely ripened, the vine has died. When the cucurbita machata type squashes seem to have zero problems, I prefer to stick to planting varieties with the best chance. But I will be growing Pattison squash and pineapple squash from cucurbita pepo, which are basically patty pan squashes, if that's the name you're familiar with. I believe both of these types that I'll grow will vine to some degree, and I've chosen them for space-saving reasons to grow up a panel. And the fruit is really lightweight, which should be very convenient. If they don't work, I can always fall back on the Moshata squash varieties, and I very much plan to do that. Another, another type I've heard that may handle more pests in Houston is the Cucurbita maxima. I'm trialing three of these types of squashes, and some of these names are really challenging to pronounce. First is the Blue Hubbard squash. Pretty easy. The next is Marina di Shiogia, and the last, Gete Okosomin. <laughs> I have no idea what these are, but they're supposed to handle more marine climates and handle a longer term storage in these climates, which is a major problem in Houston with our humidity. Now, most southerners love to serve watermelon during the summer. And although I'm not personally a fan of this fruit, I still grow watermelon because people love it. For now, most gardeners, including myself, will agree that the sugar baby variety, which is a small, red two-serving option is an excellent choice for the Houston area. And in general, I've had better experiences with smaller fruiting varieties here. This variety and other two-person serving sizes like an orange flesh Keho watermelon are great choices. The trick for watermelon has been growing these smaller fruits on raised hog panels to keep the fruit off the ground and get as much airflow on the vines as possible. You absolutely must fertilize this fruit for better taste. Restrict the water to the vine when it ripens and know how to pick the fruit using the classic thump test or the tendril test. My favorite thump trick is this. Thump your own forehead, then your chest, and now your stomach. These should produce three distinctly different sounds. This will give you a good impression of what your watermelon should sound like if it is underripe, ripe, or overripe respectively. Other people like the tendril trick, where you watch the tendril closest to the fruit, and when the tendril dries up, you are in range for picking the ripe fruit. I like to watch the tendril, and when it starts to dry, then I do my thump test once a day and start paying attention to the weather to make sure the fruit won't get loaded up with rainwater before harvesting. My favorite cucumber varieties include any Asian cucumber variety, and I especially like Japanese long cucumbers, because they do not become water-filled and ripen too quickly. They also have a long storage on the counter. I'm in a seed swap and seed gifting group, and someone gifted me a sampling of every one of the cucumbers they grow. It was so incredibly generous. All I asked for was to trade one variety of my Lufagord for any variety of one of her Asian cucumbers, and she ended up giving me seven varieties. Every single seed germinated too, which was amazing. So this year, if everything goes according to plan, I will be growing China Jade, Richmond Green Apple, 
Dragon's Egg, Jibai Shimoshi, Enoga Jibai, Sikim, and Cucamelons. They really cannot make it any harder on me with these names. An interesting fact, though, cucumbers are of the cucumis genus, but cucamelons are part of the genus Melothria, but all are of the cucurbit family. Okay, I know I'm packing your brain with information, and as much as I'd love you to become a super nerd in 30 minutes, I'm going to give you a quick chance to take another break before we finish up with my absolute favorites from the cucurbit family. Now let's talk about outliers in this family. The underutilized and underappreciated gourds, along with bitter melon, loofah, and jelly melon. Did you know that these foods are the simplest to grow in the Houston climate? Take almost zero care and produce an abundance of food with very little water or fertilization? Did you also know that these foods can be pretty pricey in the grocery stores, despite how easy it is to grow them yourself? So let's start with jelly melon, also known as African horned melon. And in the grocery stores, you will see it on display as the Kawano jelly melon, priced at $4.99 to even $5.99. This fruit is a late season replacement for cucumber with a similar taste and lots of vitamins, and the thick skin gives it a longer storage on the counter. The biggest difference between this fruit and the cucumber is that the texture is more like a room temperature jello, making it an acquired texture for most people. It also ripens incredibly late, once the outdoor temperatures start to cool down in fall, which is surprising given how tropical this fruit seems. I'm thinking that this fruit just needs a really long growing period, but honestly, until it gets really hot outside, the vine just will not grow. So you're looking at a growing period in Houston from about May to November, even if you try to start a vine much earlier. There are two huge downsides to this plant that should be considered before growing. First, if the fruit drops off the vine and rots or is left on the counter to rot, the smell is putrid. This rot seems to happen because of piercing insects that attack the fruit, and probably that's a Houston-specific problem. The other downside is that the entire plant, including the vine and leaves, is covered in tiny hairs that will irritate the skin like fiberglass. This plant requires a lot of trimming to maintain proper airflow, and that is a big challenge when the tiny hairs are so irritating. Next is one of my favorite weird but interesting gourds. And if you frequent a typical commercial grocery store, you may never see a bitter melon sold there. However, this vegetable is used in Asian or Indian culinary dishes because it is said to reduce blood sugar, which can be a helpful addition to Western diets as well. If you try to purchase this in an Asian market, you can find one of the several bitter melon varieties, but I specifically prefer a variety not grown in stores called the Satsuma Bitter Melon. You'll have gorgeous ripe orange fruits against a bright green backdrop just in time for fall photos by adding this to your garden. I'm also growing pure white bitter melon and something called Big Top, which appears to be harvested in the green younger stage. All should add a lot of interest to the garden this year, so I'm pretty excited. Lufa is probably my biggest crowd-pleasing variety. 
Fruit begins to ripen in early summer and can be eaten when very young, but it's most known to be used as a loofah bath sponge. Most other gourds aren't known for edible characteristics, but many can be eaten at the young stage, as I've mentioned before, and loofah is used in cooked dishes for many Asian cultures. Other gourds are really better as a decorative item, such as the birdhouse gourd, bottle gourd, caveman's club, and spinning top dancing gourd. However, there are two types of giant gourds grown in my garden that have been showing excellent potential for a replacement as zucchini, especially for summer and late season food options with a longer storage. Zucca gourd and wax or ash gourd have mild flavor that allows both to work in many culinary dishes or as substitutes. Further, wax gourd has incredible umami taste, and I've used it as a replacement for potatoes, zucchini, and even apples in various dishes. If you're looking for a guarantee in the garden, the gourds will be the best option for you. Here's the reason why I'm so excited about gourds. Because I mentioned a gourd can be eaten at the young stage, or for some, used after it's further ripened, you can think of this just like a summer or winter squash, which means a range of harvesting during the growing process. Not only is it the only plant easily producing food in the middle of the hottest summer or even in a drought, but you can restart this plant with little effort when the rest of your garden is struggling in the heat and get a jump start on the late summer or early fall last chance warm season garden. So just as a recap, because they're so hardy, you can manipulate your planting time with gourds and plant a succession of crops even into the very hot summer and still get some soft young stage produce that is completely edible at the end of November when your older vines are focusing on and putting all of the energy into producing the larger fully ripened gourds or winter squash for longer storage food. Now, the care and maintenance for these plants is really simple. If you are growing the right varieties for the Houston area for the cucurbit family, then you shouldn't need to do more than amend your soil with compost when planting seeds or small plants. And then you can always go a step further by lightly fertilizing with Super Thrive and Liquid Humates every two weeks or so until the plant is well established and strong. Before fertilizing with liquid fertilizer, water deeply and then apply so the liquid mixture does not immediately run off. Usually this is all I do for these plants, with the exception of watermelon, which needs more support and consideration with fertilizing. The gourds have taken little to no effort to establish and bear fruit, but they do require the vines to be trimmed because they'll take over the garden if they're given the chance and really need to be trellised with good airflow to reduce potential problems. These plants with good airflow tend to have little to no pest or disease issues though. With summer and winter squashes, I like to trellis these as well and follow the same simple protocol for fertilizing, but I will usually bury the stems deeper with these plants and even pile soil on top of the stem, leading to a fruit that is establishing particularly nicely. The stem-touching soil will grow roots and is a great way to receive extra nutrients and support from the vine. Additionally, if for any reason the main vine is damaged during the growing process, this second set of roots will take over as the primary plant. This technique is actually used to grow prize-winning giant pumpkins and is very effective. You can then fertilize additionally throughout the growing season if needed at these new root sites located at the fruit instead of hunting for the original planting location. 
For larger gourds or squashes that will outgrow a trellis with heavy fruit, you can run these vines along the ground, but a good idea is to use filter fabric or cardboard to avoid grass competing with the vines. Again, good airflow is necessary for these vines even when they're on the ground, and in a humid climate like Houston, vines need to sun dry every morning. And did you know that squashes are not supposed to be stored in the fridge? For a long time, I actually didn't, and I learned the hard way last season when I had a bumper crop of zucchini. Succession planting is a great technique to use for summer squash that will have large harvests day after day or might have pest problems, but it's not a necessary technique for winter squash because the tough outer skin allows for longer storage indoors after harvesting. Now before we finish, let's circle back to flowering and pollinating. As I've already mentioned, male flowers will appear first, which is exciting, but because they can't produce any fruit, most growers get frustrated at this point because they don't know why their plant isn't getting pollinated and setting fruit right away. In fact, this is one of the most commonly asked questions among first-time squash growers. When you start to see the first flowers on your cucurbits, be patient until you see a flower with an inferior ovary. On a plant like a butternut squash, for example, the inferior ovary looks like a tiny butternut squash with a flower on top. You can pretty much start identifying your variety of cucurbit just from this inferior ovary shape. There is no confusion between the male and female flower for this squash. I work year-round to make sure that pollinators are attracted to my garden by providing year-round foliage that blooms regularly or planting flowers during the cool season to make sure my garden is the go-to spot for pollinators when spring starts. I don't have to hand pollinate my plants, which saves me a lot of time. However, there is an advantage to hand pollinating certain members of the cucurbit family, and this is because not all female flowers will offer the best fruit. You can determine this before a flower is pollinated by looking at the inferior ovary and comparing its size to other female flower ovaries on the plant that also have not been pollinated yet. I will remove smaller sizes and purposefully hand pollinate female flowers I've decided to keep to get the best chance at good sized fruit. Additionally, Hand pollinating reduces the risk of cross-pollination and will allow you to keep your seeds for the next year with more confidence that you're keeping the variety you intended to grow. Hand pollinating is pretty simple. In the early morning, take a male flower that has obvious pollen and is not in the process of dying, pull off the petals, turn it upside down on the female flower, and wedge it so it doesn't blow away. I've seen growers take a paintbrush and brush pollen on a female flower, or go to other links to hand pollinate if all of their plants live in an enclosed space or greenhouse, but it really doesn't have to be this complicated if you're growing outdoors. This is because ants, beetles, and other pollinating bugs are usually already in that female flower and will move pollen around for you. The pollen will also just fall off on its own as the day goes on and may be transported by wind or larger flying insects if you're not hand pollinating. Thanks so much for learning with me. I hope today's episode gave you the confidence and the tools to grow some food from the Q. Curbitaceae family this warm season. I'd love to hear about the varieties you're planning to grow this year. You can find me on Instagram at TurnYourHeadAndScoff or Facebook group Homestead Gardening for the Texas Gulf Coast if you'd like to connect and share your garden stories with me. Also, don't forget Q&A Fridays are your opportunity to ask questions or ask for more information on this episode. 
For a visual aid to an easy seed starting method I use indoors for all of my warm season crops, check out my quick four minute YouTube episode titled, The Simplest Indoor Seed Starting. If you're like me and love to read, check out my garden blog for more gardening information. New articles are added regularly, including reviews of my favorite plants growing in my two acre test garden.